Would you stand with me for the reading from Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9. And uh, my friends, we're looking from verse 9 to verse 13. You'll find it on page 814 in the Pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. And uh, once we've all found the place uh, in our Bibles, let's uh, bow our heads and commit this time to God as we come now to study His Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that uh, on this uh, beautiful Labor Day weekend, as we, in a way, uh, say goodbye to the summer and look forward to the, the fall, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to hear your word. Help us to come now with a sense of thrill. What is it that you have to say to us now? Father, would you by your spirit use your word in our lives for our healing, our encouragement, our, our great good, the good of your people and the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. So my friends, Matthew chapter 9 and uh, starting in verse 9, that's where I'll begin reading and I'll conclude uh, reading at verse 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not Sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Do please sit down. Well, as we uh, come now to uh, study this passage, I just want to begin with um, a word of uh, recognition. I've been back now for a few weeks from the summer. And uh, in a church this size, it takes a little while for messages of encouragement to reach me. And, um, and I want to pass on encouragement to those who taught uh, and, and, and preached and led while I was away over the summer. I've had many comments of how much people appreciated that. And uh, so I'm just saying that publicly uh, to encourage them and also to acknowledge what a great team we have here. Of course, this is Labor Day, 
And so uh, there are a few of us away uh, for Labor Day festivities uh, and all that, and that's fine. Uh, but the good news is <laughs> that this is a great passage, and the good news is that, uh, in a sense, what we're looking at here is the best Labor Day barbecue ever. And uh, Jesus tells us why he did this and what it means. And if you look at the end of the passage, you will see uh, that uh, Jesus uh, uses a certain lens to interpret um, the passage. And, And that lens comes from the Bible, from the Old Testament, from the book of Hosea. Uh, chapter 6, verse 6, and he says, uh, he quotes, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so what Jesus is saying there is that this uh, best of all Labor Day barbecues, as it were, is all about mercy. It's all about mercy. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's how Jesus interprets what is going on in this passage. It's about Mercy. Now, of course, uh, we have different definitions of what mercy means in, in our head, and it's instructive, isn't it, to look at how Jesus then defines mercy. He interprets this as about mercy, and therefore, what is mercy? He's going to define it uh, through, uh, through this passage. So as you look down, you'll see that uh, this passage, uh, I think, uh, can be easily um, broken up, divided into two sections. So verses 9 and 10 are about an act of mercy. Jesus has mercy on someone. It, It is a divine act of mercy. It is an event that leads to the best of all Labor Day barbecues. It's an act of mercy in verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 11 and 13, for when mercy is really put into action, it always raises questions. Really? You're going to have mercy on him or her? Really? And you could say that if our acts of mercy never cause any questions. Maybe they are not radical enough, for it always leads to questions, and so it did, verses 11 to 13. And in response to those questions in these verses, Jesus then, having done an act of mercy, a radical gospel act of mercy, Jesus then gives a a, a biblical lesson about mercy. He he, he teaches in response to the questioning uh, that uh, it brings to the surface, his act of mercy. And I say it is biblical because well, it's in the Bible, but Jesus specifically quotes from the Bible, from Hosea. So what we have here is an act of mercy followed by a lesson about mercy. And as I say, this is defining mercy for us. I don't know how you uh, define mercy. I was taught many times to define mercy like this. Perhaps you were similarly. Grace, I was told, grace is God giving us uh, um, what we do not deserve. You see, that's grace. It's a gift. God is giving us what we do not deserve. We do not deserve salvation, and so that is grace. Mercy 
What is mercy? Uh, I was taught, and it's a good definition and commonly used. You may have come across it yourself. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. In other words, uh, you know, the, uh, the justice for our actions and our behavior and the judgment. And yet God here has mercy. It's a good definition. And I'm not going to change it. I think it's a very helpful definition. But when we put it like that in, in very sort of logical terms, it, it, though, though it resonates a little with our hearts, it, it just kind of is like water off a duck's back. It just sort of floats on down. And so here we have a story, a story about mercy. It's an act of mercy, a lesson about mercy, and it's going to show us uh, how to receive mercy and then how to how to give mercy. So let's look down then, verses 9 to 10. Look down with me at your Bibles. And you'll see here first we have an act of mercy. And so verse 9 begins, doesn't it? As Jesus passed on from there. Well, uh, from where? Uh, Of course, from what has just happened before. And in all the uh, synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all agree that this takes place right after Jesus has done uh, something specifically. That is, he has raised the paralytic. So there's a paralyzed man that is brought to Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, uh, your, my son, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who, who is he to forgive sins? You know, it's one thing to forgive someone when they sin against you. Another thing to forgive someone for their sins. Only God can forgive in that sense people's sins, you see. Who, who is he? And then he says, well, to show you that the Son of Man, this definition of, of God that we looked at last week, who Jesus was in human flesh, fully divine, from Daniel chapter 7, to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he then says to the paralytic, rise up. And the paralytic gets up and walks, and they are amazed. As he passed on from there, So that needs to be in your mind as you look now at this passage. So he passed on from there. From where? From having raised the paralyzed man to show that he has authority to forgive sins. In a way, it's carrying on the same theme of of mercy in a sense. What happened next? Well, verse 9 continues. He saw a man. Right there you have the mercy of Jesus that he noticed this particular person. It is characteristic of God that he loves the humble and contrite in heart who tremble at his word. And there are many like that here this morning. And yet here, in his amazing mercy, who does he notice? Not someone like that, but a man called Matthew, a tax collector. And what is Matthew doing? Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. In the other accounts, Matthew is called Levi. Here, in what is almost certainly Matthew's own account of his own conversion, in his own gospel, Matthew uses this word for himself, this name for himself, Matthew, not the tribal name Levi. Why is that? We don't know. But it's possible that uh, he was given that name by Jesus, like Simon was called Peter. Or in the Old Testament, Abraham was called Abraham, and uh, Jacob, Israel, and Levi, Matthew. 
Matthew means the gift of God. And so Matthew is preparing us to realize that this is going to be a great act of grace and mercy. He's not Levi now, he's Matthew, he's saying. He saw a man called Matthew. What is Matthew doing? Matthew is sitting. Now, I think this is significant. Let me show you how significant I think this is. Here is a chair. And I I may remember to put it back, or I may not, so the musicians will have to forgive me. Matthew is sitting with uh, apologies for those on the right-hand side down the front. He's sitting. Imagine there he is at the tax booth. It may have been a a, a relatively small uh, construction of one kind or another. And Matthew is, as it were, I see him in my concept of this moment, sitting, as it were, locked. Jesus passes by, and Matthew doesn't notice him. Jesus was well known. Great crowds. Matthew's sitting there. He is fixed. He is, we might say, chained to his desk. (laughs) Using the same penmanship, the same writing skills that he used to Uh, be at the back of the gospel of Matthew, he is now, before he becomes a real follower of Jesus, he is checking off who owes him what. He is sitting there. He is paralyzed by greed. See, what, what were tax collectors? Tax collectors were people, you know, that uh, probably at the time you realized the tax collectors were more than those who simply were, uh, in our day, collecting taxes, which is an honorable profession, and and all the rest. But uh, in those days, tax collectors were people who were despised for two reasons. One, because they were viewed as cheats. Uh, In other words, the tax-collecting system at the time was such that it gave um, possibility to those who were collecting taxes, not only to collect the minimum, but to add to that as they could um, get away with to line their own pockets. And so tax collectors were viewed as cheats, enriching themselves at others' expenses. Cheats and collaborators. So they, because they were collecting taxes for imperial Rome, either directly or via by way of a client king like Herod, they were viewed as collaborators with the richly unclean Roman occupying force. So there's Jesus, and who does he see? A man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. This is the one he's going to call. You see, this is not, uh, for Jesus to do this is a radical act of mercy. Tax collectors at the time were the equivalent of collaborators in in the Nazi regime in uh, occupied France under the Vichy government. They They were viewed as traitors, practically. Uh, to bring it up to date, you might say that they were people who were collecting money for Islamic fundamentalist terrorist organizations, you could say. 
a little too extreme for the Romans, of course, were viewed as a, a, a peaceful good force by some, but they were hated by many. So for Jesus to call this person to follow him is a radical act of mercy and is not just a minor faux pas like wearing white after Labor Day. There he is, he's he's sitting. I want you to see that again. He's sitting at the tax booth. As he passed on from there, the paralyzed man, he says, rise and he rose. He's locked at his his desk. He is paralyzed by greed. Jesus says, the word of Jesus, the power of the gospel, the effectual call of Jesus, he says, simply follow me. He said to the paralyzed man, rise, and he rose. He says to the man with a paralysis of greed, follow me, and he rose. And I have to say that for the uh, original uh, viewers of this, I don't know which would have been more shocking, more surprising, the paralyzed man walking or the, or the tax collector following Jesus. It is a radical act of mercy. And like all gospel acts of mercy, it's a, it has an impact of ripple effects. And so as you look down with me at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, we know from the other accounts that this was an extravagant party. Matthew doesn't draw attention to this. He's rather modest. He wants to draw attention to what Jesus did, not what he did in response. But it was an extravagant party. As Jesus reclined at table, in the, in the ancient uh, fashion, you, you, you lay on one side, as it were, and ate with the, other, with the other arm. So Jesus is fully engaged in this party. As he reclined at table in the house, this best of all Labor Day barbecues, behold, many tax collectors, the ripple effect of mercy, and sinners, <laughs> Came and we're also reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What does that mean? It means that the recipient of mercy became a practitioner of mercy. What did Matthew do? He put on a big party and he invited all his friends. If you've really been touched by the mercy of Jesus, the one thing you want above all is for other people to meet him. So it was with Matthew. So it is with all of us here who know what this this means, this mercy. Not only that, of course, he's also with Jesus and his disciples. If you've been really touched by the mercy of Jesus, you want not only to reach out to those who do not yet have that mercy. You also want to be with those who already have it, his disciples. So in my mind's eye here, I see almost the early New Testament church in miniature. I'm reminded of of, uh, one church that I got to know over several years that was in a mission country where it was not easy 
to be a Christian, and you could be persecuted for being a Christian. This church had a wonderful name. It called itself the Church of Love. Big letters above the pulpit, Church of Love. And uh, one Sunday, they had uh, been preaching the gospel, and as always, people had been receiving mercy and bringing their friends to find more mercy. One Sunday, though, the secret police came and arrested people in the church and threw them in jail, you see. Well, they were not there for for long. The the police had nothing on them. It was just scare tactics. And so the next Sunday, these people were back in church. It was great, an answer to prayer. Here's the thing. They came back to church with a whole group of other people who had been in prison the previous week not for attending church. The recipient of mercy becomes a practitioner of mercy. Now, I don't know who these kind of people would be for us to have mercy upon in our context. Maybe it is people who have a slightly different view of our theological system than us. Or maybe it is the suburban, white-collar, alcoholic. Or the person whose um, family life is a shame. Or the person whose um, sexual temptations are ones that we don't know how to handle. This is a, a, a radical act of mercy. Well, as always, such acts uh, create questions. So then let's look then at those questions, my friends. So this is now verses 11 to 13. And uh, now we're introduced to the Pharisees. Don't you love the Pharisees? I know you're not meant to, but they're great, aren't they? I mean, they, you know, you can almost hear the music change in the background. And when the Pharisees... dun dum Dum, you know, uh, or, or maybe it's uh, uh, you know it's sort of more Star Wars than Jaws. Perhaps you you begin to hear you know, and when the Pharisees, you know, <laughs> you know, the Pharisees. Who were these Pharisees? Uh, it'd be so caricatured that uh, you know. Uh, the only time you apply Pharisee to anyone today is when you really disagree with them or don't like them. You know, they're being Pharisaic. And because of that, the kind of contrast that there is so often in Scripture between Pharisaic religion just looks like something so different from what we could ever be tempted by that we just ignore it, you know. They're the bad guys with the sort of, you know, the hat on that indicates, you know, bad person, you know. Um, so who were the Pharisees? Well, Pharisees, the word most scholars think, though no one knows for sure, means separated ones. In other words, they are a purification movement. They're trying to purify uh, God's people. The Pharisees, it seems, viewed that uh, they stood in line 
with the great reform movement, and it was a great reform movement originally under Ezra in, in the Bible, calling God's people after they returned from exile back to the law. And the Pharisees got their moral conviction, if you like, from thinking they stood in that line. They were wrong, as Jesus will make clear, but that's what they thought, it seems to me at least, as I looked at them over the years. That they were defenders of the law because they viewed that God's people had gone into exile by breaking the law and that must never happen again. You see. So what did they do? Well, what they did is, of course, they, they, they tried to make sure it would never happen again by creating what they called hedges around the law. Other laws, and there were many, and this is what gives them their caricature flavor because some of them seem strange. Many laws around the revealed law in Scripture in order to stop someone from ever risking actually breaking one of those laws. Do you begin to get a sense of empathy? for? <laughs> in other words, in their mind, almost everything became a slippery slope argument. Well, we mustn't do this, and therefore we must not even go here. We mustn't do that, and therefore we must stay right over here. Such were the Pharisees. Poor fellows desperately needing to hear this lesson about mercy. And so Jesus is going to show them, well, what do they say? They say to his disciples, they're they're whispering to his disciples, that the party is taking place in a room around the courtyard, and the Pharisees, I think, probably were in the courtyard seeing what was going on and whispering to the disciples when they came out for a breath of fresh air. Have you heard? Do you see what's going on? What do they say? Why does your teacher, notice it is not their teacher, it is your teacher, they're captivated by religious pride, they're not there to learn, they're there to criticize and to teach. It's your teacher, not ours. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, we define tax collectors. Sinners, on the lips of a Pharisee, usually meant one of two things. It either meant the ritually impure, those who did not keep all the Pharisaic ritual regulations, or it meant those who were notoriously sinful, that is, uh, those who committed heinous moral crimes of one kind or another. And probably, given that this is bracketed together with tax collectors, it probably means both. So tax collectors and sinners, sinners richly impure, and those who committed a notoriously sinful actions. And what are they saying about Jesus? How are they criticizing him? What they're saying is this. They're saying to his disciples, look at your teacher. How is he obeying Psalm 1, verse 1? Does not the word say, blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners? Or sit in the seat of mockers. There's your teacher. He's not standing in their way or sitting in their seat. He's reclining at their table. How outrageous. And so uh, either because the disciples have no good answer or because Jesus eventually hears the whisper campaign, 
Jesus then, when he heard it, verse 12, he said, this beautiful phrase, Jesus is such a master teacher. In one picture, he answers the problem. So what does Jesus say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. (laughs) Do you see what he's saying? What Jesus is saying there is, look, for you to criticize me, a savior, for being close to sinners is as ludicrous as criticizing a doctor for going on his rounds next to sick people. Of course I'm near sinners. I'm here to heal them, save them. Of course a doctor is near sinful people, uh, sick, sick people. He's there to help them, to heal them, to make them well. Now Jesus is not thereby giving excuse to live morally reprehensible life and lives or lifestyle, he's saying that he's on a mission, just like a doctor, to heal. So he is a savior to save. It's a brilliant answer, isn't it? And then verse 13 comes the biblical lesson. Can you see it? Go and learn what this means. Now, when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, that's functioning at a number of different levels there. So Jesus has said to Matthew, follow me. He says to the Pharisees, go. So it is a rebuke, I think. But then also, it is learn. So same root word as disciple there. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, go and, go and be discipled by Scripture. And if you will, that will take you to me. So it's a rebuke, but with mercy in this lesson. Go and learn what this means. What what means? Well, this is, I desire, uh, this is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy on not sacrifice. Now, when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, we had better do so. So you, you, let, let me just paint for you Hosea 6, verse 6. As you probably know, Hosea is an extended parable about God's love for his people even when they are unfaithful. Extended parable because Hosea, the prophet, is called by God to be faithful to an adulterous wife. And in this extended parable, and you can, you can find Hosea if you like, maybe you should, Hosea 6 verse 6, in this extended parable, God is saying he's like that. He is wooing, he is seeking, he is loving this unfaithful wife, that is his unfaithful people. Then Hosea uh, 6 verse 6 is saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is the English translation of a Greek word that translates a Hebrew word, chesed, which is the covenant word for this marriage covenant bond between God and his people. So what, what, what God is saying there is, I desire this mercy, this covenant, this love, this faithfulness, and not sacrifice. That does not mean that God is against sacrifice, for he ordered sacrifice. What it means is that at the time, when the people were convicted of their idolatry, Worshipping false idols, God, not saying that God is the only way, but having other gods too. 
What they did under conviction was go back to religious ritual. I'll perform a sacrifice. That, that will keep God happy. And God is saying, no, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So that's the context. And then Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now usually, this is preached like this. Therefore, you too should have mercy on tax collectors and sinners. Don't be Pharisaic-like. Go on mission and reach them. That is true and a good application of this passage. But I want you to see in this biblical lesson about mercy how Jesus actually preaches it. So he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then he carries on, for you should go and have mercy on people. No. What does he say? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came, not to call the righteous but sinners. There's God speaking through his prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. As the story of Hosea unfolds, one day he will bring back his rebellious people to himself. He will restore them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is going to happen one day. When is this going to happen? Pharisee, Jesus is saying. It's happening now. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For who? For I came, he's saying. He's fulfilling the Hosea prophecy at that moment. And so, yes, of course it is ironic that the Pharisees too are sinners. And of course we should all act in mercy to tax collectors and sinners and not be Pharisaic-like But all of that application comes out of this. Being a recipient of the mercy of Jesus himself at that moment and at this moment. For I came to call not the righteous but sinners. For we all need mercy, don't we, my friends? You know, I think perhaps the, the best illustration I could think of of this point that has been made here is in the life of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is well known as an a anti-slavery um, campaigner who through his uh, lifelong work in, uh, uh, as a politician eventually um, abolished slavery at the time, though of course it's kept on rearing its ugly head even still today. But uh, he campaigned against slavery, and he was in many ways a a whole biography of of mercy, of actions of mercy. He would have mercy even on on animals. He was a merciful person, and he looked at slavery, and he had mercy. That's well known about Wilberforce. Less well known is that he was a committed biblical Christian. Even less well known is how he viewed it was possible for a so-called Christian country to turn a blind eye to slavery and immorality. He wrote a book called A Practical View of Christianity. 
And in that book, he argues in his own way, but in the terms that we're looking at this morning, that the reason why people can turn, their, turn a blind eye and have a hard heart towards those who so need mercy, like slaves, is because they don't think they need mercy themselves. The recipient of mercy becomes the practitioner of mercy. Do you see? When we, when we understand that Jesus is the person who is dispensing this mercy as this physician of souls, it's a game changer. We're all on a level. And we become practitioners of mercy too. You see, there's so many people like that in this church. I could tell you story after story of people having mercy. And so now as we come to pray, what what I want you to do, we're going to pray and then we'll sing and then there'll be the benediction. And at the end of the service, there will be as usual a pastor and an elder uh, down the front. And I want you, whether, whether you are saying to yourself, you know, this week I really feel like a sinner, I really feel like a tax collector, whether that is you, or whether you're saying, you know, I, I need to soften my heart. Either way, as we pray, and then if you come up for prayer after the service, that Jesus would have mercy on us. So let's, let's bow in prayer together. As we uh, close our eyes, would you just run through your mind's eye again this story, this best of all Labor Day barbecues. Jesus seeing the tax collector of Matthew and And he rises from his paralysis of greed. And then there's a big party and all his friends are invited and the disciples are there. And the ripple effects of mercy at that moment and down through history in Jesus' church. And then the questions that come. And Jesus' answer from Hosea, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call sinners to repentance. Would you see that picture in your mind's eye? And then would you recline at table with Jesus? Father, we are indeed sorry that we are sinners. And yet we're so grateful that you are a God who delights in mercy. Jesus, would you have mercy on us this morning and help us as we receive that mercy
to become practitioners, even more, Father, even more, to become practitioners of mercy too. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.